Uh, we're, we're talking today, continuing the met series of messages we started a few weeks ago about our mission and about our strategy. And uh, like I reminded you before, and, and I'll just kind of review this again so that we're all on the same page. Remember, our mission t- answers the question for us of what and why. What are we trying to do as a church and why do we exist as a church? That's the question that our mission answers for us. And our mission here at, at Freedom Fellowship is to help people discover true freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ. That's the what and the why of who we are. That's what we're trying to accomplish. It's why this church was begun uh, several years ago now. It's why we do what we do every week. It's so that we can help as many people as possible discover true freedom, and only true freedom is found in Jesus, not through any other religion, not through any other relationship, not through any substance, not through money, not through success. It's only found in Jesus. That's what we believe. That's what drives us as a church. Now, our strategy, it answers the question, how? That's a, I believe that's a great mission. I, I believe that I, I, we wouldn't have started this church if I hadn't believed that was a great mission. But how are we going to do that? There's a lot of ways that you can go about that. And so our strategy answers the question how. And our strategy is this, to create churches where people are encouraged and equipped to grow toward Jesus Christ, develop real relationships, and love people. In the last two weeks, we've talked about what it means to grow towards Jesus Christ. And then last week, we talked about what it means to develop real relationships. And today, I want us to talk about what does it really mean to love people? Now, when I say that, when I say, okay, love people, and we talked last week about developing real relationships, those two things kind of sound like they overlap, don't they? It seems like that those are the same thing, and and they do in some ways overlap because it's hard to develop real relationships with people if you don't love people, so that's a part of that. But really for us, when we talk about developing real relationships and talk about loving people, the difference comes in who we're focusing on. Developing real relationships is what we're trying to do in here, what we're trying to do with each other. That's why Life Groups is so vital to that because you're going to be in Life Groups with other people that are a part of this church, and you're going to get to know them. Love people is what we want to be sure that we are focusing on for everyone who's outside of our church, who's not yet a part of this church, and that's what we're wanting to focus on. How can we love people? And so I think that there's a great story in Scripture that I think tells this better than I could because the reason why is because the guy who told the story was Jesus, and any story he tells is going to be better than any story I could tell. And so we're going to look at a story Jesus told today about how we can better love people. And it's in the book of Luke, chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, and the New Testament is, is the second part of the Bible. The, those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books. Look in Luke chapter 10. Look, pull up your iPhone or your iPad and you can pull it up on there. If you don't have that, it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to read through verses 25 through 36. And instead of reading through it all at one time, we're going to read and talk and read and talk. And that's kind of how, how we're going to go through this today. Now, let me ask you this. Um, you, don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know some of you in here were, were raised just like I was because I've taught you before. And, and I was raised where I was always in church. If the door was open, we had to be there. It was just, you know, it was very important for us to be in church. And so if you were like that, immediately this story is going to be very familiar to you. But here's the cool thing about this story. For those of you that weren't raised in church, and if you weren't raised in church, I'm really happy that you're here today. 
And if you weren't, even if you weren't raised in church, there's going to be parts of this story that are familiar. This is one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. It's one that people that weren't in church, that don't really know about Jesus, they've heard some of the language that's used in this story. So let's look together at Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. And behold, oh, by the way, let me tell you this. Jesus is standing around teaching, all right? He's been doing a lot of teaching. He's standing around. There's a group of people there. He's teaching. He's talking about what it means to follow, follow God. It talks about what the kingdom of God is. Talking about great stuff, and then this happens. And behold, a lawyer, which is always bad news. Sorry, Carla Patat. She knew I was going to say that. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's the interesting thing about this part of the, the story, is the lawyer asks a good question. The question he asks is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a great question. In fact, that is a question that other people ask Jesus throughout. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read those four books, you'll see there's a lot of other people who ask Jesus that same question. If you read the book of Acts, there's people that ask Peter and, and ask John that same question. They might say, what must I do to inherit eternal life or what must I do to be saved? And so that's a great question that this lawyer asked. There's not a problem at all with the question. Here's where the problem comes in. The problem is in his motivation. What is his motivation? Well, it tells us right there. Luke tells us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. See, this guy wasn't sitting there listening to Jesus, hoping to learn something new. He wasn't there because he wanted, you know, a better life, that he was really hoping for himself to, to know more about God. He was there hoping to find Jesus, hear Jesus say something that he could then accuse him of, that he could then make a, an argument, that, that he could do, use some kind of way to get Jesus in trouble for what he was teaching. And see, what Jesus dealt with as he taught is he dealt with a lot of that. He dealt with a lot of people who weren't there to learn. They were there just to try to stir things up. And, and this is not the point of today's message, but I can't, I can't read that verse without at least mentioning to you, what about you? Why do you come to hear teaching? Why are you here today? When you turn on the TV and you watch Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or whoever it is, why are you watching it? Are you watching really hoping to learn something, know more about God? Or instead are you saying, I can't, well, I'm gonna, he's going to say something wrong and I'm going to tweet about it, you know, or whatever. Or I'm going to tell somebody, you don't want to go to that church because this guy said this or I heard Joel Osteen say this or Joyce Meyer said this or whoever it is that you listen to. And so that just, we need to just think about ourselves. Are we listening to teaching to really learn? Or are we doing that to try to put somebody to the test? All right, next verse, verse 26. So I love how Jesus answers him. So this guy asks a good question, but he asks it for the wrong reasons. And I believe Jesus probably knew that. In fact, I know he, he knew that. He knew what the guy's motivation was. So look at this question Jesus asked him. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, what is this guy's vocation, what is it? You can say it out loud. Lawyer. And Jesus asked him, what is written in the law? So this is like asking a middle school girl, what are all the names of the guys in one direction? I mean, this is a, this is a softball question, right? He should know what's written in the law. 
right? And so when Jesus asked him that, I, I, when, I, when I read this, I was thinking to myself of, as I read it, you know, it'll be interesting to see what this guy says because I don't know how many of you have read the Old Testament law. It, you can find it in, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the, mostly in the books of, of Leviticus, and then there's a lot of it in Numbers, and there's some in Deuteronomy, some in Exodus, but Leviticus is like just one whole book of just law after law after law. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's laws about what you can eat and not eat. There's laws about how you sacrifice and don't sacrifice. There's laws about how you trim your beard and don't trim your beard. There's laws about stuff with women that we don't even talk about in public. There's just all kinds of laws, right? And so what is this guy going to say when Jesus says, what is written in the law? He could say, well, you're not supposed to trim your beard. But look at what the answer the guy gives in verse 27 and 28. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, here's further proof that the guy, the lawyer, he was not there that day to learn. Because not only did he ask a question with a wrong motive, but he asked a question that he already knew the answer to. He asked Jesus a question, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, how do you read the law? And he gives him the perfect answer. The, the answer he gives Jesus is the same thing Jesus had been teaching. In fact, I believe that this guy had probably been walking around at different times following Jesus, listening to him teach, and he knew already what he was saying. This whole love God and love people thing, Jesus had been talking about that. It's an old thing from way back in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and Jesus had been teaching it, and, and this guy had probably heard that. And so once again, he's not there to learn, he's there just to try to create some controversy. I don't know how many of you have ever known somebody like that. I knew someone, I've, I've known several people like this, but one person in particular, that, that, that this person would ask me questions, not because they wanted to know the answer, they wanted to see if I knew the answer. You know, and one time I remember this guy asked me, he said, hey, how long does it take to get to Hendersonville? And I said, oh, probably about 40 minutes. He said, no, it doesn't, you can get there in 30 minutes. And I said, why the heck did you ask me? If, if you already know, why did you ask me, right? But, and so sometimes you will, you will come up on people like that, and that's what this guy was doing. He wasn't there to learn. He was there just to try to create controversy. But he gives the right answer. But notice what Jesus responds to him in verse 28. He gives the right answer. So Jesus said, you have answered correctly, and these next two words are the, the, the important part. You have answered correctly. Do this. Do this, and you will live. See, here, here's the thing that I want you to understand today, is that knowing without doing is failure. Knowing without doing is failure. This guy knew the right answers. He, he understood, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He knew that was the right answer, but he wasn't doing that. And so... He had the right information, but he wasn't doing anything with the right information. Now, I'm going I'm to let you in on a little secret about myself. And I'm just going to be, just really being open and honest here this morning. And I'm, I'm kind of scared as I do it. But I want all of you to know that, that I, something about me, and here's what I want you to know is I don't have six-pack abs, okay? My abdominals do not look like a six-pack. Um, it's shocking, I know. I know some of you are like, really, Cliff? I cannot believe that. 
Uh, now, I don't have a keg like some, some people do, but I got a serious case. I, but I don't have a six-pack, right? Now, let me let you in on another little secret about myself. I know how to get six-pack abs. I know the exercises to do. I can, I can get down here and, and demonstrate and do at least one probably of each of them, right? I know the exercises. I even know some of the diet stuff. I know some of the things you're not supposed to eat if you want six-pack abs. And, and you know how I know that? Because we live in a world where you can get plenty of information. In fact, the other day when I was working on this message, I thought, all right, just for fun, went on Google, and I typed into Google, how to get six-pack abs. Does anybody, and you know, at the bottom it tells you how many results came up. Does anybody want to guess, if you Google that, how many results come up? Somebody throw out a number. What do you think? What, somebody say two million? All right, anybody else? 320 million, that's a little too much, but it's more than that. 32 million pages on Google come up if you say how to get six-pack abs. Now, here's the deal. Ladies, the reason your husband doesn't have six-pack abs is not for lack of information. There's plenty of information out there. The reason I don't have six-pack abs is not for lack of information. What is it from? It's from lack of action. Information is not the problem. Action is the problem. And what Jesus says to this man is, listen, you, can, you know the information. You're a lawyer. You know the Old Testament law. You know about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know about loving your neighbor as yourself. You know about all that stuff. But it's not about all that stuff you know. It's about what you're doing with what you know. At some point, the information has got to be transformed into action. You remember in the fall, we just finished up. We did a, a whole series on the part of the Bible that, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's an extended period of teaching that Jesus did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And do you remember what the last verse of that, that Jesus says that we talked about the last Sunday? Because remember, the Sermon on the Mount has all kinds of good stuff in there. It talks about relationships. It talks about what to do with your money. It talks about how to respond to God. It talks about forgiving people. It talks about all kinds of good stuff. And then the very last verse, Jesus says this, Matthew 7, 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be, be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, it's not just enough to stand there and listen to Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount. You have to do something with what you hear. And when it comes to loving people, if we're going to truly be a church that loves people, it's, it's not just enough for us to know, okay, we're supposed to love people. And I know a lot of verses about loving people. And I know the theology of love, that God is love. And so all love comes from God. And that I can answer all these questions and all this stuff. No, what it comes down to is, what are we doing with what we know? How are we taking those verses? How are we taking those messages you hear? How are you taking that stuff you talk about in life group? And how are you acting that out day in and day out when you meet up with people who need to know Jesus? Are you loving them? Is it an action and not just information? And so go to verse 29. So Jesus tells them, do this and you will live. And then this guy, you know, at this point, it would have been a good opportunity for him to say, thanks, Jesus, and walk away. But no, remember, he's not there to learn. He's there to stir something up. Verse 29, this is what he says. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, think about this, this question here. 
Jesus has already made it very clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy, what he wants to know is, okay, I believe that. That's what you said we're supposed to do, and I know that's the right answer. But let's go ahead and eliminate everybody I don't have to love so I can just focus on in the few that I am supposed to love. So tell me who my neighbor is so I can ignore all those other people. This would be like if you, you had a business and you had a job opening and you were looking to hire somebody. Let's say somebody comes in and, and they're looking good and you're talking to them. They've got all the right references. Maybe they've got a resume. They've got experience for what you want them to do. They're doing great in their interview. And you're about to offer them the job and they say, can I ask you one question? You say, sure. Go ahead, ask me a question. And they say, what is the least amount of work that I can do and not get fired on this job? Would you hire that person? No. There's no way you'd hire that person. You'd say, why don't you go do the least amount of work for somebody else? I'm going to get somebody here who wants to work. And so that's what this guy's saying to Jesus. What's the least amount that I can do? You say I'm supposed to do something, do this, and you will live. All right, what's the least amount that I can do and still be in right with God and still do what I'm supposed to do? So I love that Jesus doesn't answer him directly. Instead, Jesus tells him a story, and it starts off in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from, from Jericho to Jerusalem it was about 18 miles long. So it was a, a pretty good, and but listen, remember, no scooters, no, no bikes, uh, no, no motorized anything at that point. So you were either walking this or riding a donkey on this. So 18 miles was a pretty good journey, especially if you had a bunch of stuff with you. And on this 18-mile journey between Jerusalem and Jericho, there were a lot of rocks and a lot of places that people could hide, that would, and they would do that. These guys, they would go there and they would hide out, and they would look to, to ambush people. And, and to, to take all of their stuff. And so when Jesus tells this story, this is something that happened regularly. So people are connecting and understanding, oh yeah, I had a friend of mine. He got mugged on that same road. They took all of his stuff, took all of his unleavened bread and whatever else he was carrying around with him that day, right? So then it says this, verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In verse 32. So likewise, a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, what does this mean, priest and Levite? Well, if you go all the way back to Numbers 18, don't do it right now, but you can write that down and look at it later. You go all the way back to Numbers 18. God was establishing, all right, this is the way we're going to worship. And he, he had had this thing back then called the tabernacle because they did not yet build the temple because they were still wandering around in the wilderness. And there was this guy named Aaron, and, or Aaron, as some folks might want to call him, those who have seen that video. And Aaron was Moses' brother, and, and God had made Aaron the priest. And he said, Aaron will be the priest for all the people. He's going to be the one that's going to lead in worship. He's going to be the one that's going to make the sacrifice. And then he said, everyone who is a direct descendant of Aaron, they will also be priests. And now there were these people called the Levites. They were in the same tribe as Aaron. And that, that was the tribe of Levi, but they weren't direct descendants of Aaron's. Now the Levites, they would assist the priests. So they would be there, they would help bring the sacrifices in, they would help get the tabernacle ready, they would help put all the clothes, the, the priest had to wear all this crazy clothes like with a big turban and a, and a, a thing over him they called an ephod or an ephod and, and he would wear all this stuff and so they'd get him all ready. So here's the, here's the deal, so all these years later, a couple thousand years later, this is still going on. So you got these guys, they're the direct descendants of Aaron, they're the priests 
And then you got the Levites. They're in the tribe of Levi. They're related to Aaron, but not direct descendants. And they help out with worship. And so Jesus said, you got these two guys. These are the men of God. And they're walking along and they see this guy and they just walk over and get over to the other side of the road and keep on going. Now, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Did they do that because they're hard-hearted? Did they do that because they uh, just were late and I don't have time to mess with this today? You know, what was the deal? Well, it, I think to understand why, you've got to go back to verse 30. Look at verse 30 there. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That's the key, half dead. Because here was the deal. If you're a priest or you're a Levite or really you're anybody who follows the Jewish tradition, if you touch a dead body, then you can't do anything with other people for at least seven days. You can't go back to your own home. You've got to do some cleansing. You can't be around people. And so that's a big deal if you're a priest because you're on the way to the temple to make the sacrifice, to do this for all the people. And if, I, if the, I'm going to go see this guy, he looks from where I'm standing, he looks like he might already be dead. If I touch him, if I take care of him, then I'm not going to be able to do my duty at, at, the, at the temple and, and do what I'm supposed to do as a priest or do what I'm supposed to do as a Levite. And so these guys, what happened was, is they allowed religious tradition to get in the way of them loving another human being. They allowed their religious tradition to get in the way of them taking care of another human being in need. Now, I think we need to ask ourselves a question today. And all of us need to ask this, and that is, what keeps me from loving people? Now, I don't think it's religious tradition with you. I don't think there's any of you here today that have refused to love someone because you're afraid it would make you ceremonially unclean and that you would not be able to do your job as a Levite. I don't think there's any of you here today that fit that description. But I think there's a whole host of other reasons that we hold on to that keep us from loving people the way we're supposed to. Just like these guys, they held on to their religious tradition, and it caused them to ignore the needs of someone right in front of them. Maybe for us it's inconvenience. Maybe for us it's money or time or prejudice or self-doubt. We think we don't have anything to offer. And so there could be many different things that get in the way of us loving people. And only we can answer that for ourselves. What keeps me from loving people? Now, at this point of the story, Jesus has already been pretty scandalous. Because look at what he's done here. He has taken the, the religious people that all the Jews looked up to and he's basically made them the villains of the story. He said, these guys, they just ignored it. These guys that are supposed to be men of God, they're not even helping this poor guy. He's beaten up, minding his own business, and, and they're not doing anything to help him. So this is already a scandalous story. And then Jesus decides to up the ante. He turns up the heat, turns up the volume, and says, now I'm going to be extremely scandalous. And this is what he does in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, why is that so scandalous? Samaritans and Jews had nothing to do with each other. 
Samaritans and Jews hated one another. The reason there were Samaritans and Jews, you go back to the Old Testament again, you go all the way back to there was a king named Solomon. He was David. You'd ever heard of King David. Solomon was his, his son. Solomon was the one, remember, had all the wives, had all the money, all that kind of stuff. And after Solomon was no longer king, there was these big battles that broke out, and the nation of Israel was divided in two. And so there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, kind of like our nation was at one time, where you had the north and the south, right? And so the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they hated each other. And it stayed divided for a long time. And so the people from the northern kingdom were called the Samaritans. And the people from the southern kingdom, they called themselves the true Israelites, the true Jews. And they had Jerusalem in the southern kingdom where the temple was built and they could worship there. And so all these years later, all that happened thousands of years ago. All these years later, they still hate one another. They still have nothing to do with each other. And Jesus chooses somebody that everyone he's listen, that's listening to him, that everyone he's listen, that, that's listening to him hates. He chooses that person to be the hero of the story. And he says, this is the guy, the guy that y'all hate, the guy that y'all look down on. He's the one that came along and showed love and showed compassion and showed mercy on the person who had been beaten up. And then in verses 34 through 36, I love what Jesus does here. He gives us a great picture of what loving people really looks like. Because remember, loving people is not about a fuzzy feeling. Loving people is not about, well, I, I hope they're okay. Loving people is about doing something. And he gives a picture of it in verses 34 through 36. He says this. This is what the Samaritan did. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And here's, here's what Jesus does here. As he gives us some examples of what love and action looks like. For us, this is the, some things that we can do if we truly want to love people. The first thing is love and action requires personal attention. It requires personal attention. In verse 34 there, it says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That's not something you can do from a distance. That's not, that's not something, this is, this is more than just paying somebody else. Hey, that guy's in trouble. Here, here's five bucks, help him out. No, this was personal attention, going and taking care of his wounds, taking care of him, putting oil and wine on him, being up close and personal to the person who's hurting. Second thing, that, that loving people can require of us at sometimes is time. It can require time. Look at what it says here in, in verse 34. It says, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, so what that means is he take, I don't, I don't know what this, this Samaritan had going on. I don't know where he was heading. I don't know why he was on the road between Jer Jericho and Jerusalem. But whatever he was doing, he put his own schedule to the side and he took this hurting man and he took him to a, a hotel and he took care of him, stayed with him all night long and took care of him until the next morning. It took time. The other thing is, is it took resources. It says the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he took his own money, he paid for everything this guy needed and then said, I've got to go take care of my business that I'm running late on because I stayed here and took care of this guy, but I'm going to come back and when I do, I'll pay you anything else that this guy needs. 
If he orders room service, I'll pay for that. If he gets a pay-per-view movie, I'm probably not paying for that because that didn't help him get better. But I'm going to pay for the, whatever this guy uses, right? So he's, he's taking care of what this guy needs. And then the last thing that I think is the key to all of this, for us to love people, it's going to require that we are outward focused. This is a Samaritan that has nothing to do with Jews. This is somebody different from him, apart from his culture, someone that he normally would never spend time with. And he makes that person the focus of his care and attention. He took the focus off of himself and he placed it on somebody else. And see, I think that's going to be the real key for us as a church. If we want to be a church that loves people, then we're going to have to quit focusing on ourselves as individuals and look and say, what's around me? What kind of help do people need around me? But see, it's so natural to focus on ourselves, isn't it? We, we get to the point where whatever's going on with us, that's the most important thing. That's the way we feel, isn't it? I got a friend of mine um, who I haven't seen in a long time, but I keep up with him on Facebook. And uh, not too long ago, evidently, he made a decision and his family made a decision that they were going to be vegetarians. I don't know how they got to that decision. Maybe one day they were eating a steak and they said, you know what? I don't want to enjoy life anymore. I'm only going to eat broccoli. I, I have no idea, right, how they got to this decision. And listen, if you're a vegetarian, awesome for you, all right? I'm glad you like rabbit food. I would rather eat the rabbit. So, so this guy, he decided to become a vegetarian, which is great. But now everything that he put on Facebook for a period of time was all about being a vegetarian. It was all, hey, I've decided to be a vegetarian. You ought to read this article, and he'd put a link to it, you know. Here's a movie I saw about how terrible meat is. Look at this. Here's, and you know, here's a picture on, of, you know, of this great vegetarian meal that I just made for me and my wife and our kids and all this stuff. Good. I'm so glad he's a vegetarian. But at some point, that became everything that he was focused on. That was his whole life. And we all do that. It might not be about vegetarianism or eating meat or any of that stuff. But at some point, we get to the, to the place in our lives where it seems like we think that what's going on with us, that everyone else should be involved in that. That it's, this, if this is important to me, well then doggone it, it should be important to you. And this is what's happening in my life and, and I don't have time for anybody else or anything else because it's all about what's going on with me. Whether it's good things or bad things, we can get wrapped up in ourselves. And if we're going to love people, we have to take the focus off of us and begin to look around and say, what are the needs around me? What was that person that I work with, what's going on in their life? that maybe I can show them some mercy, show them some compassion, be a loving example to them, step into their life and help out. Now, every, um, every week I've given you, uh, given you handles, uh, things that I think that, that we can do. This week, the handles, I was thinking, well, this is hard to come up with handles because it's going to be really personalized for you. So here's the personal handle. Remember, every week I give you one that only you can do, I can't do for you, we can't do as a church. Here's the personal handle for you. That is start with one. 
Start with one. Start with one person. Now, what, that, what you're going to do for that person, I can't answer because it's going to depend on who that person is. Maybe if someone, all they need is they just need somebody to talk to or, and, and to, to listen to them. Maybe, maybe it's even greater than that. Maybe it's a, a huge need for housing or a car or something like that. I don't know. But, but whatever it is, start with one. All of us should, should have somebody in our life that we can show love to and, they, and, and we can start with them. I'm going to show love to that person. And you're thinking, Cliff, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Yes, okay. But you can't do something for everybody, can you? So start with one. Just start with one. And I think if we do that, we'll be amazed at what happens, all right? The, the, the second handle, which is this is for all of us together, get involved with events that show love to our community. From time to time here at this church, we do events that are designed specifically to show love to folks that don't go to this church. One of those that we're doing this summer is Turn It Up, which we did at Greer City Park last summer. That is designed, now it is, our kids come to that too, but that's designed to show love to children outside of this community. And here, and it's going to be here before you know it. It'll be in a few weeks. All of a sudden, we'll be saying, hey, Turn It Up's coming up this summer. You ought to sign up. You ought to be a part of that. Get involved in those type of events. That's the handle that we can all do together. Now, I want to I close by, uh, by telling you a story because I, I love this, this story. I love this little child. There's a little girl in our church um, who is wonderful and sweet and, and just excited about life all the time. And uh, a few weeks ago, she won an award at her school. And the award was the Superstar Character of the Month Award. Now, you get that award for demonstrating good character, not being a character. She is a character, but that's not why she got the award. It's for demonstrating good character, for at doing what you're supposed to do at school. And so I mean, that's a big deal because out of all the kids in her class, she's the one that got the Superstar Character of the Month Award. So we were all excited about that. And so the next time I saw her at church, I went up to her, and she gave me a hug, and I'm down on my knees, and I said, hey, I heard you won an award at school. And she said, yeah, I did. And I said, what was it for? And she went, um, and she was kind of, and I said, was it for being good? And she said, I'm some kind of superstar, (laughs) which I thought was awesome, right? And I said, baby, you've always been a superstar to me. You sure are. So, but that was, I'm some kind of superstar. Now, you know what, what, what I discover, and I know that all of you do too, the, the longer I live and the more people I talk to, is that, that there's a lot of tough things that happen in this life. That our world can be a very unforgiving, unkind place to live in. And that every day that, that you are, meet people, that, that they feel like anything but a superstar. They feel defeated. They feel like they're not living up to expectations. They feel like that, that they're not being who they thought they would be. They feel useless and used up. And, and the thing that, that is so sad about that is that that's not the way God sees us. God doesn't see us as useless. God doesn't, doesn't see us as defeated and never going to amount to anything. God sees us as his children that he loved and created. All of us. Whether you're following him or not, he loves all of us the same. 
Isn't that amazing? That those of you that are here, I know none of y'all sin, right? But the people that are out there, all those terrible sinners, right? He loves them just as much as he loves you people that never sin. He loves us all the same. Now, what would it do to our community if all of us left here today and we walked out of here an army of people that loved other people and made them feel like superstars, made them feel like they're important? You know what I think it would do? I think it would start to open some doors in people's hearts and minds that maybe then they would be ready to hear about the love that God has for them. We can make a tremendous impact in people's lives. And I said this to you last week when we talked about developing real relationships, but I want to follow up on it again. Don't ever think that you can't be instrumental in someone's life changing. God can use you to be the agent of change in someone's life that leads them to Jesus where their life will be transformed forever. And that's the difference between asking who is my neighbor and how can I love my neighbor. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go home. Make somebody feel like a superstar this week. Let's pray. Father God, I am um, just overwhelmed with the unconditional love that you have given to me. I think through the things that I've done and the things that I've thought and the, the attitudes that have lived in my heart and the fact that you would allow me to stand on this stage and open up your word and teach it is proof that you are a gracious and loving God that loves us unconditionally. I pray that this week that I would and the rest of us would go out of here and show love to the people we come in contact with. That we'd start with one and then that would multiply and multiply until we have made an amazing impact on our community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.